Hey, well, welcome again. As I said, my name is Aiden. I'm so glad that you're uh, with us. I know talking over this last week, some of you are kind of traveling this summer, work schedules change, and so this online service is a way for you to kind of keep in touch uh, while your maybe life is out of sync a little bit. Uh, for some of you, you're out of the area for a while, and this is a way for you to keep in touch uh, with Grace. And for some of you, this may be the main way that you uh, have kind of met us and connected with us. All those ways are so glad that you're with us. I would encourage you, please, please shoot us an email, ask us any questions. We'd love for this to be more than just you watching, but for us to have a dialogue, answer any questions, uh, pray for you in any way that we can. Uh, if, if you've known me at all, you know that I, I tend to be a mumbler. Oftentimes, Pastor Dan, who you see talking a lot, will be in meetings and he'll just look at me and say, I have no idea what you said. You need to say that again. Growing up, uh, my mother would always say, you need to enunciate, is what she always, some of you are like, I'm glad at least you're acknowledging it, Aiden. I never know what you're saying. I got to put the subtitles on. But I'm, I'm a mumbler. I'm not always clear uh, with the things that I say. And I'm also a verbal processor, uh, which means I kind of figure things out as I talk right? I can't write them down. I, I got to talk it out, figure it out, right? So sometimes it lends itself to not being super clear uh, when I communicate with certain people in certain situations. And so sometimes I don't speak very clear, but also, also a lot of times I don't, I don't understand very, like you got to talk slow to me, right? You got to like, Michael Scott says, like, explain this to me as if you're explaining this to a seventh, a seven-year-old or something. Like you got to just like slow it down and help me understand because I don't always connect the dots. And one time when I first came out of high school, my first job out of high school, I worked for this uh, kind of like a temp in this big uh, organization, big corporation, whatever. And I don't know if you've ever taken this, but at the beginning of starting the work there, I had to take what was like an honesty test, I think is what it was called. Like some type of, they like want to make sure that you're a decent human, I guess. So I had to take this honesty test, right? And so I, I go and I take this as I'm kind of applying. And I, the way I thought, like you go take this honesty test and it has a lot of questions. Like it's like, if you, if you walked by and saw money, are you gonna take it? Would you, fi would you follow fire protocols if there's a fire in the building? Would you be honest about your, your pay and work hours, da, da, da. And they're all like pretty clear things, right? So I thought, oh, it's an honesty test. Obviously it's clear on what the answers are. So what I have to do is just be honest about the ones that I'm probably not gonna do, all right? Like I overthought this thing. And so I remember like, no, I'm not gonna take the money. No, I'm gonna report my right hours, da, da, da. But I remember the one question, I'm like, I gotta figure out something that makes me sound honest. And so it's like, would you fire, would you follow the fire protocols if there's a fire in the building? And I'm like, you know what? I freak out a lot. I probably won't, probably won't do that. There's a couple other things like that that I'm like, I probably wouldn't. Cause I thought I was supposed to be honest, right? And I'm, like a day later, I got a call from the, the recruiter lady who was working there and she goes, Aiden, can you take the honesty test again? And can you just answer it how you, how you should probably answer it? Like, and they just wanted like the straight answer. Like this guy's not gonna steal, he's gonna listen to the rules, so on. But it wasn't always clear. I wasn't very clear on how I was supposed to respond to this thing. Some things we navigate in life, and this is this is why I think a lot of our culture is where it is right now, is. Sometimes things just aren't always super clear, right? And we kind of refer to these as gray areas, right? There's things that are black, there's things that are white, there's things that are clear, right? Don't steal, follow the fire protocols, report your right hours, whatever. But sometimes there's like gray areas in the way that certain things play out. And today we're opening up a very unique passage as we continue through 1 Corinthians. We're gonna open up a very unique passage that kind of addresses some of these gray areas and how we navigate things that aren't always clear. But before we, before we jump into this, I, I kind of want to start with the end. 
I I don't, I never was a puzzle guy, but I built Legos a lot. So whether you're a puzzle person, a Lego person, or you got to put together Ikea furniture, there's always a, a picture on the front of the box. And as you walk through your furniture, as you walk through your Legos or your puzzle, you always look back to that picture to give us a reference point of what it is that we're doing. And today, as we navigate some unclear gray areas a little bit in this passage, I want to have the picture on the front of the box. And and what I want to start with is just the, the character and the nature of the God that we worship. You may be watching, you're a follower of Jesus. And I, I want to remind you then, as we go into this, this is who God is. And maybe you're someone who doesn't yet know Jesus and you're kind of exploring Christ, or maybe you're having conversations with someone like this. I want to paint this picture, the picture on the front of the box, that this is who Christ is. I want to start with the character and the heart of God, the gospel of Jesus, and the message of the kingdom, that God, the creator, came as a human. He was nailed to a cross to pay for sin. That you and I, that sinners, if you are not a sinner, turn this off and go get lunch because you don't need to hear what I have to say. But if you happen to be a sinner like the rest of us on the planet, we acknowledge that Jesus has died for us. He has made a way to pay for our sin, to pay for the things that keep us up at night, to pay for the things that haunt us, to deal with those things so that we might have relationship with God and might be called into life and life abundant and follow him into this. In his heart, his character, we see this in Philippians 2. This is such a powerful passage. And usually I would end with this, but I want this to be the backdrop to today. In Philippians 2, Paul kind of writes this poem. He says, in your relationships with one another, as you navigate the complexity of life, the unclear areas of life together, have the same mindset as Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Though he was God, though he had all the freedoms, all the rights, all the power, all the authority of God the creator, he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That the backdrop for the sake of the conversation today is that we have a God who laid aside his majesty, his position, his rights, his honor, his comfort, his glory to serve and save and die for sinners like you and me. This is, the re- this is the reason we do everything. It's the reason we go through the whole process of doing this online service, of gathering together. This is the message that week in, week out, we want to remind ourselves of that God is for sinners. And he laid aside his rights to come and die and be with us. And the book of 1 Corinthians is all about looking to this story as, as this church, this early church in Corinth, navigated problems and confusion and conflict, both with sin and with each other. There was a church with lots of problems. And the book is, how do we look to the backdrop of this story on the front of the box as we navigate all these complexities? And so Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to followers. He's writing to a church, right? He's not just writing to random culture. He's writing to the church and saying, this is how we are called to live and respond to the message, to the picture on the front of the box. And today, specifically, he's addressing some of these areas that are gray, that are kind of debatable. And so for the sake of today, I want to maybe ask uh, this question. Bear with me as we figure out this clicker deal. How do we, how do you and I follow Jesus through areas that aren't always clear? Like, how do we do this together? Because sometimes we as individuals have to navigate gray areas, but most often we have to navigate these areas together because we don't live in a vacuum, right? That our actions, our responses, our freedoms, our opinions play into the lives of one another, play into the lives of the church. How do we navigate this together? 
I heard a pastor say this. I think it kind of is a good uh, rough definition of gray areas. That gray areas are morally neutral, biblically ambiguous. Maybe there's a passage that has this context, a passage that, hit, that has this context, or maybe scripture doesn't address it at all, but it's morally neutral, biblically ambiguous, and culturally controversial. Versial. Morally neutral, biblically ambiguous, and culturally controversial. Kind of those three kind of ideas of, of gray areas. And, and we can think of many things, and oftentimes it's the things that we don't always think about that show up in our lives as gray areas. Think about this with media consumption, the way, the, the things that we take in, right, all affect us different. And there's, there's kind of this, this gray areas, what movies are all right to watch, what music is all right to process, which, what different games do we, do we involve ourselves with? Like how, what, what has a bearing on my heart, which is neutral? What is, what does the scripture say about these video games? What does the scripture say about which rating we should watch? Like it can be a gray area, right? We see this play out with alcohol, right? That, that for some of us, this can be an addictive thing. This can be a struggle for some of us. We're like, ah, that's drink a glass of wine, not a big deal. It's a gray area on how it plays out, right? A lot of different substances, tobacco, how that all plays out. Think about how many things within the political world are gray areas, right? Like, what's the right tax code, right? Do we pay more taxes, let the government deal with it, or do we keep the money to ourselves and we deal with it? How is this plan? It's a gray area. I mean, some of us think it's the gospel of Jesus, but it's a gray area oftentimes, right? You think about how do we celebrate Halloween? Should we get tattoos? Homeschool or public school? Do you date? Do you court? Arrange marriage? The list goes on. We can think of all kinds of gray areas. I think about maybe a gray area for the sake of today. It's a a light one, but I think it makes the point. This passage that we're going to look at talks about this idea of the weak and the strong and how it bears on our conscience. Like we have a strong conscience or a weak conscience. We're going to get to that. But I think about this gray area with social media. Me and Pastor Adam, you know Pastor Adam, uh, he's been on here many times. Me and Pastor Adam, we, we talk about social media things. I am weaker in the area of social media. I will get quickly addicted to social media, and I think it's an ill to society. I think we would all be a lot better if we didn't have social media. You're probably watching this on Facebook right now. Like, I, I'm just like, I, I don't have really any, and I'm like, I just think it's a bad thing. I, didn't, I got rid of some of that stuff a long time ago, uh, and I, I got on Facebook during the pandemic, for a couple weeks and it just destroyed my soul because it's too much, right? And I just am weak in that area. But Adam, he sees all the, the pros to social media. He, he does not get addicted to it. It does not wear on his soul. He doesn't see something somebody says on social media and it just weighs on him forever. But he sees it as this tool to be able to connect with people, to be able to know what's going on in other people's lives, to be able to, to connect with people and kind of network. He's the king of networking. So he's stronger in this area. But it's this gray area. Should I be on social media? Should I kind of participate in this? Should I not? How does this play out in my life? Many of our the contexts we find ourselves in, the personalities that we have, maybe the subcultures and backgrounds we grew up in, they shape our view of these things, right? I was a kid that was uh, homeschooled and grew up in the 90s, kind of conservative homeschool uh, for part of my childhood, growing up in the 90s. And there was a, like, we didn't read Harry Potter. <laughs> you know, it was one of those, we didn't read Harry Potter because of wizards and magic, right? But, you know, Lord of the Rings magic was fine. Those wizards were great, right? Like, it was like the cultural, con- it was different, right? Uh, up here, you know, if you, you smoke, it's frowned upon, right? With the chair, like, don't smoke, right? But I, I had a, a boss who, about, uh, when I started worship leading, I had a boss that grew up in Kentucky, and he's like, you would leave church, and all the men would be in their suits smoking a cigar outside the church. Like, it was this cultural thing, right? That language can take on different meaning in different places. 
if I sat here and said, oh, it's bloody TV here, it's bloody TV, I think it's like really offensive if we're in England. Like I think I'm saying something pretty explicit if I'm in England, right? I don't know that for sure, but like our language can change depending upon where we're at. And if I heard funny stories regarding that, but our context shapes some of our perspectives of these things. Some of us, we grew up in a certain religious tradition. So there's certain maybe styles of music, maybe uh, certain things like dancing or movies or certain things that were like those things were frowned upon. For some of us, maybe it's a certain political party that we grew up in and it shapes the way that we see uh, certain things. Uh, I think about how sometimes we can make neutral things sinful and we can flip that and oftentimes we can kind of neutralize things that are actually sinful. I think about Pastor Jeff, our senior pastor, Grace, he says this, when it comes to kind of the political uh, world, we can spiritualize political things and we can politicize spiritual things. Some, some things the Bible's very, like, please hear me. As we talk about navigating gray areas, some things are very black and white in scripture. Like many things are very black and white. They're not debatable. It may be debatable on how we proceed, how these things play out, how we show truth in love. But the issue itself is not, is not black and white, or is not gray. It's, it's black or white. And Paul addresses this gray area in his day of followers of Jesus and how to navigate this. And, and what we're going to kind of jump into today, we're kind of getting there, we don't deal with this today. We don't have this struggle today. But, but the principles, kind of the filters that, that Paul gives us are crucial, not only to how we navigate these areas together within the church, which is first and, first and foremost, how we navigate these gray areas together. But it, but it influences how our hearts and how our attitudes influences the greater culture and the people around us. That if we can get a handle on this concept today, if we can learn how in our own hearts and how in our own community as followers of Jesus, how we navigate this, how we navigate gray areas, has a big bearing on the culture and the world that we find ourselves in. So I wanna give just a quick cultural background as we jump into this passage, because if we don't, it's gonna make no sense. So he's gonna talk about idols and meat, and can we eat meat, dedicated idols and consciences and weak and strong, and how does this play out? So I want you to think about the Roman Empire a couple thousand years ago. It was a world where there's many temples, there's many different gods. It's very polytheistic, there's many different gods. You had gods to sex and fertility, you had gods to the weather, you have the sea and the land and fire and work and war, all these different gods. And then there'd be different kind of gods and idols depending upon maybe the craft you were in, like a blacksmithing or, I don't know, the fast food industry or all these different types of gods that you would, you would kind of sacrifice to and acknowledge in order for your work to go well. And what would happen? is that you would go to these different temples, that you would take a sacrifice to these different temples. And what we don't always think about is these sacrifices, oftentimes, not every sacrifice, dependent upon the sacrifice, that the one uh, giving the sacrifice would participate in eating that. So say you take a dove to be sacrificed to the god of blacksmithing so that you can have a good year of blacksmithing. And so you would take this dove, you'd sacrifice this dove, you would eat some of the dove, it would feed the priests who'd make the sacrifice. And any leftover meat would go to the market. You didn't have refrigerators, you didn't have freezers, didn't have that one in the basement that you keep all your old popsicles in. But you would, you would have to take the meat to the market and it would be sold and it would be eaten because it would just be used. So this, this meat that was intended to be a sacrifice to a god could oftentimes end up in a market. And, and it's worth noting that some, not in all of them, but in many of these temples, it wasn't just a simple sacrifice to this thing that would happen, but these different temples could have 
different abuses that were associated with the temples, maybe different sexual immorality that was associated with the temples, different dark practices that were associated with the temples. There would be different things that would, that would be going on. And there, there was a conflict with certain people, certain people that maybe came from a Jewish background, that maybe came, that were very involved in some of these, a life that participated in these temples before, and now they're followers of Jesus. And so they kind of know a lot of different things that went on, that there was a conflict for people about eating this meat that was originally intended to be given to these gods, but now found its way into the market. There was this conflict. Should we eat this? Is God going to be angry if we eat this? Perhaps when they ate this meat, they would associate it with everything else they saw. Was this meat going to make me unclean in some way? Was it going to make me impure in some way? How was it going to affect me? If we eat this meat, are we giving into the greater culture? Like, how do we process this? And in this passage, Paul is going to refer to two groups. He calls them the weak and the strong. It sounds like strong language, but Paul oftentimes uses strong, straightforward language. But for the sake of today, you could think about this. And he, he kind of has some critiques and some things for both groups. You know, he has some, he has some things for both groups. But to the weak, you can almost think of them as the group that is more towards cultural withdrawal. We've seen some things, we participate in these things, maybe, maybe we're just simply fearful of getting involved in these things, so we are going to go to the other side and withdraw from these things. We don't want to make God angry, we don't want to pollute ourselves with the culture out there, right? And so we kind of, the weak are the cultural, the weaker conscience kind of cultural withdrawal. And the other side, the strong, just for the word, the way Paul uses it this week, is the group that would lean towards this cultural engagement. Maybe there's a little bit more of the gospel mechanics, which we'll look at, makes sense. Then there's this knowledge that they have, which Paul references. And so they're like, I, I'm not as worried about being polluted by these things or God being angry because I have these, an understanding of the gospel in a certain way. And so there's more of this cultural engagement where we can engage with certain things of culture, maybe fall on that side of the spectrum. So you kind of see the two pieces. All right, that's the framework we are going to jump in today. We're going to pick up in chapter eight. We're going to read through chapter eight. We're going to pick up at verse four. So with that context, Paul says this, you still with me? So then about eating foods sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God, but one God. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God, the father from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there was but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. He's like, it is set in stone. God is God of all. He's God of us. There is one God. Sure, there may be these different gods, which are often demons, and there's these different idols, but there's only one true God. He says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge or has this, this strong conscience in these things. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, this is the food in the market, that they think of it as being sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So but for these individuals who feel this way, their conscience is tainted when they participate in eating this meat. He says, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat it, no better if we do. He's saying eating the meat, the, the, this is about the conscience being weak and strong. If we eat the meat, it doesn't mean anything. If we don't eat the meat, it doesn't mean anything. But look at what he says, verse nine. But be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For those that felt fine with it, that didn't have a defiled conscience, they're like, we can eat it, it's fine. The side on the culturally engaged side, he says, don't let your rights become a stumbling block for those that struggle. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in the idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? 
So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way, it's powerful language, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ because we are the body of Christ. Therefore, it's a strong language. If what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Now we're going to pack this. I want to look at, I want to look at three kind of different filters that we're kind of having this conversation through three different filters that Paul kind of goes through here with. The first filter is this filter, this worship filter. Maybe the question you ask is, as I engage in these gray areas, now we're not talking about eating meat in the market, but media or certain substances or certain, certain practices, whatever it is, certain interests, as I engage with these things, maybe a question is, does it have my heart? Think about it, we all we all worship something. Worship is our intentional participation in something. It's us int- intentionally spending time on something, spending energy on something, going to something that gives ultimate honor to something or someone. Like it's an ultimate, I'm stepping into something that's pushing towards something or someone ultimately and is also shaping my heart. I, I'm giving focus and attention to something that's shaping my heart. For example, this is why we just sang a song together. This is why we gather and worship. This is why we worry. We come together. We are participating in something. We're not just passive spectators, but we participate in something that we are giving glory and honor to God about. When we open the scriptures, we sing together, when we confess together, that we are honoring God and that thing is shaping us. That's why we worship, right? But we all worship. Worship is not just this church word. We've said this many times. We all worship, right? We think about our careers. We think about celebrities in our culture. We think about our culture of sex, the way that we look, our children, our desire for experiences. We see the politics, kind of the theater of politics playing out, that we can all worship in these different things, right? It's what we give our heart to. It's what we give our time and our money and our energy and our emotions, you know? What makes us most upset, what makes us become unhinged, it might be something that we worship. And look at how Paul kind of addresses this. Look what he says in verse five. He says, for even if they're so-called gods, whether in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many, yet for us, there is one God, the father from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord Christ, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come, through whom we live. That for those who are kind of struggling, should we eat meat? Is it going to taint us? Is this going to overcome? Paul kind of zooms out to remind them that the whole backdrop that God is greater than everything, that he is the true God, that he is the true one worthy of our worship, that all things come from God, that everything we navigate is under the backdrop of his greatness and of the story of the gospel. And what can happen is if we don't start there with a big picture of worship to God, is that we begin to jam God into our little cultural things. Well, what does God think about this issue? or this issue, or how does he play out in this issue, or this issue? And we start jamming into different things. But when we turn and we worship God, it gives us perspective to navigate and see where these other things, these other issues, these gray areas appropriately fit into the greater story. Worship puts everything in its right perspective. When we properly worship Jesus, from whom all things came, Everything is from Jesus, and our life is through Christ. Acts says that we live and we move and we have our being. It gives us the proper perspective. 
And what happens oftentimes, if we worship politics, if we worship our kids, if we worship our careers, if we worship our emotions, then we, we start saying, oh, I feel this way, so where does God fit? What Bible verse can I use to approve the, the thing I already want to worship? See this playing out all the time, right? But look at what Paul says. This is important. This is Paul kind of critiques and kind of addresses kind of the side, the freedom group, the side that says we can culturally engage. He has something to say to him. Chapter 10 kind of mirrors chapter 8. He has this whole three chapter uh, dissertation from 8 to 10 about this concept. He says in chapter 10, he says, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. It is, is not the cup of thanksgiving from which we give thanks, participation in the blood of Christ. Talking about communion. And it's not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share. He says, when we do this spiritual practice, this religious practice of participating in communion together, we come, we do this at our church, we come, we sit, we break the bread, we break the wine, we worship Jesus, we acknowledge his death, burial, resurrection. He says, are we not participating in something? But look what he says. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. He would be uh, referencing kind of the Old Testament. He says, do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? He says, no. He said, again, he's saying these idols, these guys, they're nothing. They have no power over Jesus. They're just little symbols to try to point to something else. They mean nothing. But look what he, look what he says. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to participate with demons. What he's, what, what he's kind of talking about here is he makes this distinction. He goes on in chapter 10 to make this distinction. He's saying the food that you purchase in the market. He said, he's saying that that, that is not, it's nothing. Jesus is over all things. Follow your conscience. If you feel weak about it, don't eat the meat. If you feel like I can eat the meat, eat the meat. He's saying it doesn't matter. But what he's saying is that people, these people who are falling on the side of kind of cultural engagement, they were actually going to eat these meals in the temples with their non-believing friends, going into the temples that were being sacrificed to these other, these other idols and eating with them. And Paul is saying, now hold up. When you do that, you are participating in this practice. And what he's saying is behind these idols were different demons right? It sounds a little, we're like, whoa, whoa, wait, demons in our culture. Yes, spiritual realities are very true. In our very straightforward platonic culture of the West that we grew up in, we're like, these things are child's play. These are very real. Spiritual realities are very real for the follower of Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, I don't want you to actually be a participant in something that is glorifying a demon. I don't want you to participate in worship of something else. And we can fall, we're not talking about maybe walking to a temple and eating meat that was sacrificed to a demon. That feels a little on the nose, but we can worship and participate in practices that worship the idols of our culture, of sex and of money and of power and of individual autonomy, that we can be worshipers of those same things. And what happens often, if you're somebody who says, no, I got freedom, I, I can engage in the culture, that Paul is saying, be careful because sometimes, well, I don't want to be a weird Christian. You know, I want to be relevant. I want to be able to connect with our culture. What can happen is we can succumb to cultural norms. We can succumb to kind of the cultural definitions of happiness and the good life. And we can take our kind of worship at the altar of our culture's way of happiness. We do this. We can worship at our culture's altar of sex that our identities, that our happiness, that our ultimate meaning plays out sexually. And we can worship at that altar. 
that our attitudes, very much, we've seen this especially in the last six, seven years that our culture says you have to be angry, you have to have an opinion, you have to be mad, you have to be disoriented with everything going on and we can worship at our, at our culture's altar of anger. And we can succumb to those things. As we talk about worship, I think you asked this question, how is my participation in something? Now we talk about navigating gray areas. How is my participation in something shaping my heart? Am I worshiping this thing? Am I worshiping this thing? Is it politics? Is it my kids? This gray area of media that I can participate in, am I worshiping this thing? Is my time, my energy, my emotions, my money, are they all being poured into this thing? We gotta keep cruising. The second filter is this, this freedom filter. Now this is what Paul talks about a lot in here, about our rights and our freedom in these gray areas. Is this an area where I am free in Christ? Is this area where I do have freedom? Look at what he says. Not everyone possesses this knowledge, this certain understanding of the gospel. He says, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificed food, they think of it as being sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled, but food does not bring us closer to God. Look what he says. No worse if we do and no better if we don't. Like he's like, it's fine either way. There's freedom in this specific area. Now, again, I just want to reiterate, some areas are not gray areas. They're black and white. So I just kind of like, sexually I can do what I want and just kind of move with my boyfriend. I mean, the last two weeks we've talked about, there's very specific things, right? We can't just do whatever we want. There's things that are clear, right? But we have freedom to different responses, the different situations we mentioned above. Celebrating Halloween, how do we process alcohol? How do we play out these movies? How do we, is certain music okay? There's freedom in these things, depending upon our conscience. But as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, we've kind of brought this up, that in our culture, this concept of freedom has evolved. And oftentimes what we talk about is biblical freedom and the freedom that especially we talk about in America and in the West, they're not the same thing. And so we take our American freedom. I can do whatever I want. I can be whoever I want. Don't tell me what I can't do. We take that and we apply that to the biblical picture of freedom and it's it's not compatible. It's not compatible. Because what happens is we take that freedom and we apply it to the biblical picture of freedom. What often happens is that we say, oh, I'm freeing Christ. Okay, I can do whatever I want then. Because Jesus died for me. His blood is shed for me. I'm in right standing with God. So I I can do whatever I want. Jesus forgives me. And we can have that attitude. I think we all walk through different seasons. I think this is something Satan tempts us with. He said, oh, you can, you can do that. Yeah, yeah, God doesn't care. You're free. Sure, sure, sure. Do whatever you want. We've all walked through different seasons of that. And we say, God, God forgives me. I can do this thing. That, that's not the freedom that, that Paul's talking about. It's not the freedom that Christ has given us. That's not the freedom that we see in Scripture. What does it mean to be free as a follower of Jesus? What are we free from? There's a couple different things that we, we are, are free from the power of sin and death. As human beings, we are born into sin. Original sin has tainted us. We are born into sin. Is God going to send me to hell for this thing? No, our sinful hearts are already sending us to hell, separated from God. And that when we identify with Christ, that he frees us from sin and from death. That we are free from that. That we are free from the penalty of sin. That 2 Corinthians says that Jesus took our sin on himself, nailed to the cross, bore our penalty. We are free from the penalty. The penalty has been paid. Jesus is, God isn't just graceful because he's like, you know, it's not that big a deal. Just sin is no big deal. Have a good day. It's a huge deal, so much so that God himself died for it and we are free from the penalty of our sin because Christ 
has absorbed it for us. That we as followers of Jesus, we are free of fear. We're free of condemnation is what, what 1 John says. We are free from that. We are no longer slaves to fear. We are children of God. We don't have to fear punishment from God. We don't have to fear God's wrath because we are identified in Christ. That we are free from striving, free from trying to earn our salvation, free from being exhausted in questioning if God accepts us. We are free from the demands of the law to acquire our right standing with God. We're free from these things. Perhaps one of the biggest things in our culture is that we are free from ourselves. It's so interesting that a culture that says you are free to do whatever you want and be whoever you want to be, we become enslaved to those things. You can be the best athlete, you can be the best musician, you can be the most successful person, you can be whoever you want to be. We become slaves to those things. Our freedom from the demands of the law, from the power of sin, from our need to find identity and acceptance in something outside God, that frees us to take our eyes off of ourselves. We've referenced a little book before called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I would encourage you to get it. It's about a half hour read. It's wonderful. A couple uh, months ago, I got this weird uh, face infection. I popped a zit and it went south, folks. It went real bad. I was in the most pain I've ever been in. My whole neck, my whole, it was horrible. And during that time, I was so obsessed with myself. I'm, Sarah's like, can you help with the kids? I'm like, I don't care about these kids. I don't care about our marriage. I don't care about Jesus. My face hurts and I'm gonna die. Like it's the only thing I cared about. And I, I became a slave to myself. I became self-obsessed with myself because of my pain, because of my situation, right? I was obsessed with myself. I was enslaved to this pain. But the gospel says that we are free from ourselves. We are free and we have right standing with God that Jesus has set us free. So now we are free from sin, free from death, free from the law, that we are free to live in life with Christ. If we never know where we stand with God, we become enslaved and our eyes are always on ourselves. Where we stand at with God. If we are not sure where we stand with God, we are constantly questioning we are slaves to our standing with God, but we have been set free. We know we stand with God, so I'm free to take my eyes off myself and put my eyes onto others. That's what Paul is ultimately talking about in this passage. That we, the, the question is not, am I following the rule, but the question is, what does this reveal about the heart of God? Am I pursuing the heart of God? Because now I'm free to follow the heart of God. But look at how, look at how our, our exercising of freedom plays out. This is where our kind of Western American concept of freedom and its biblical picture of freedom kind of come together. Look what Paul says in, a, like, look at, there we go. Verse nine, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in the idol's temple, if someone sees you, you know, kind of exercising your freedom, watching this, participating with this, being with these, this situation, if someone with a weak conscience sees that, they'll be emboldened to do the same thing. And it's going to destroy their conscience. But look at what he says. When you sin against them in this way, you wound their weak consciences. That your freedom has a bearing out in someone else's life. Your bearing plays out in someone else's life. So how, if we're free, if we are strong in our conscience in a certain area, how do we interact with the weak? How, do we, how, does, how does the situation with others impact my rights and my freedom? I think it leads us to this, this, last, this last filter, this love filter that Paul talks about. And I think this filter 
is in my relationships with one another in this gray area, I've got freedom to do it. I'm not worshiping something else. Can I lay this down for the sake of loving others? Because the way Paul ends this passage is he says, therefore, if what I eat, if what I watch, if what I celebrate, if what I participate in, if it causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Oh yeah, I can watch the show. This, this show's fine. It doesn't, it doesn't wait, it doesn't cause me sin, doesn't wear my conscience, it's, it's fine. Oh, so you're gonna come on and watch the show with me and if it causes this person to sin, I, I have sinned not just against them, but Paul says you sinned against Christ. And I love them when I lay down my rights. Yeah, but I love to talk about this thing. Yeah, don't talk it around this person because you're causing this person to sin. Yeah, but I want to express my freedom. I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. Like I'm an American. I can do whatever I want. But if it's causing someone else to sin, if it's causing someone else weakness, I'm going to lay that down for the sake of someone else. That we, as we look at the backdrop of Philippians, as God laid aside his rights, laid aside his glory for our sake, that we look at that in our interactions with others, I lay aside my rights and my freedoms for the sake of my brother. I love the Jurassic Park quote. It says this, because they, they kind of created these dinosaurs. One of, the, one of the guys, Ian Malcolm, says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Sometimes we say, I'm free to do this, I'm free to do this, I can do whatever I want, but we don't stop to think, should I do this? Am I loving my brother or sister by doing this? And I said chapter 10 kind of parallels chapter 8 and kind of dives into it a little bit more. And Paul says in 10, I have the right to do anything. I can do whatever I want to do. I'm free. That, that's what the people in Corinth were saying to Paul. But not everything is beneficial, Paul says. They say, I have the right to do anything, Paul. But Paul says, not everything is constructive. We're free. We can do it. We're forgiven. We can do whatever we want to do, Paul. We are free. Paul says, it's not beneficial. It's not constructive. And Paul says, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others is what Paul says. Galatians 5 references a lot of the same conversation of navigating our freedom and living in the spirit and walking in the flesh. And Paul says this to a different church, the church in Galatia in chapter 5 of Galatians. He says, brothers and sisters, you were called to be free free from sin and death, free from fear, free from yourselves. You were called to be free to follow Christ. But don't use this freedom to indulge in your flesh. He says, serve one another rather, humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law points to love of God and neighbor. That is the goal of our freedom. As we end, I just want to ask you a couple practical questions. I just want to end with the backdrop of a God who sacrifices his rights for the sake of his people, who lays aside his glory for sinners like you and I, that against that backdrop, as we navigate these gray areas, I just want to ask us a couple, this is kind of a practical week. I want to ask you just a couple practical questions as we navigate these gray areas, as we navigate our freedom in Christ. First question is this, is it actually gray? Is this actually a gray area? Is this actually morally neutral, biblically ambiguous, but culturally kind of conflicting? Is, is this actually a gray area or is it black and white? Maybe another way of saying this is what, what do the scriptures actually say about this? What do the scriptures say? So think about yeah, sexual immorality. 
it's very clear, right? Like we talked about this last two weeks, like flee. If you're like, what do you mean by that? I challenge you to check out the last couple weeks. Maybe you let your kids go to bed before you watch it. But like scripture is very clear about these things. Think about things that kind of come up in our culture, things like caring for the poor, caring for the immigrant. They're not gray areas. Biblically, they're black and white areas, all through the teaching of Jesus, that the poor, the disenfranchised, the immigrant, it's black and white. Now, in our culture, it may be gray on the best way to help, the best way to serve, the best way to prop up. That may be a gray area. Figure that out. But the fact that we're called to love these people, to love these individuals that we come into contact with, black and white. Is the area that we're navigating is it actually gray? Second question is this, am I strong or am I weak in this area? <clears throat> we all, all of us, all of, it's not like, oh, the ones that have strong consciences are totally on this side and the other ones with weak are totally on this, this withdrawal side. We all have areas that we, are, that we are strong in and that we are weak in, that our conscience is strong and weak. We all do because we all have different personalities, different contexts, different subcultures we grew up in. We all have, and so there's this, this, this aspect of being self-aware of where I am weak. And we kind of, those things kind of flush themselves out in community together. Like being honest with ourselves, Right? Like for some of us, as we talk about media consumption, if you're a guy, you're like, oh yeah, free to kind of, it's kind of a gray area. I can, you know, different media. So I'm going to watch this show because it's great. It's got some like sex scenes, but it's cool. I'm, I'm free. I, if you're a dude, you're probably weak in that area, right? Like it's probably, probably don't engage with that. But we have to be honest with ourselves. What are the areas that we are weak in? What are the areas that we are strong in? And this is where the idea of wisdom comes in. Gosh, our culture, our, our self, we need wisdom as we navigate these gray areas. And wisdom comes from the scriptures, comes from someone who walks with God. We walk with the wise, become wise as we walk in a close relationship with Jesus, as we walk with wise individuals around us, helps us to be aware of where we are weak and where we are strong. Galatians 5, Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But don't use that freedom to indulge in the flesh. Don't use your freedom to say, I'm forgiven. So this is no big deal. Jesus already paid for it. I'll apologize later. That, that's not what we've been called to. Paul says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? He's like, heck no. We don't understand grace if that's the case. Third question I'd ask is this. Is what I am doing, is it, is it worth replicating? Is it worth replicating? Paul talks about, he talks about in chapter nine. I'd encourage you to check out the, the last section of chapter nine. Paul talks about at the very end in, in, uh, of 11 chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 11. It's kind of ending of this. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul's freedom. Paul's freedom. He, he grew up Jewish with all his laws. He's free from, he says, I'm free from all these things. I, I have freedom in Christ. And Paul's freedom is a tool to serve the kingdom of God. It is a tool to love others. It is a tool to lead others to Christ, not to do what he wants. So is what I'm doing, is it worth replicating? Is it worth follow me as I follow Jesus into this thing? It's worth asking, right? And the last thing I want to think about is this. In a culture, wherever you fall on the, the political, liberal, conservative spectrum, this freedom captivates our hearts in a lot of different ways. I'm free. Don't touch my freedoms. I'm free to do what I want. Be who I want. I can do whatever I want. I don't want the government or someone else telling me I can't do it. 
And on the other side, it's like, I'm free to be who I want to be. I don't want society or your religious opinions to show who I should be or how I should live. That this, this idea of our freedom plays out all across the spectrum. Equal opportunity. And for the follower of Jesus, I would ask you this question. Can we become slaves to our freedom? Can we become a slave to our freedom? Because Paul, the way Paul communicates, he's actually free. Oh, this thing is causing you to stumble? Never eat meat again. I mean, I'm fine to eat it, it doesn't. Oh, I, I will, ne- that, that language I use, that, that media we consume, that, that thing I participate in with you, that causes you, I don't ever need to do it again. I am free from that thing. If you can't give that thing up, well, well, I'm free, I can do this thing. I can say what I wanna say, I can watch what I wanna watch, I can participate what I wanna participate. I'm, I'm free, just don't, don't. You might be enslaved to that freedom you have. If the question, by asking the question, how close can I get to this thing? Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's with media consumption. Maybe it's with substances. How, how, dr- how drunk is too drunk? If I'm asking those questions, then it may reveal that I am actually still a slave to that thing because I need that thing. I want that thing. It gives me happiness and I'm ultimately worshiping that thing. If I can't freely surrender that thing, I may be a slave to it and perhaps we aren't truly as free as we claim to be. Paul ends, Paul, Paul through chapter eight, he, this, is, I know, this is a weird, interesting section he walks through. But as we look at the, the backdrop of Philippians, the backdrop of a God who set aside his glory so that he would come I and identify. The web. Siri, I'm trying to wrap it up here. As we look at a God who laid aside his glory, laid aside himself for the sake of his people, for the sake of loving others and setting them free. That our freedom is found in the cross. In, in that story, Paul ends with this. He says, so whether you eat or drink, whether, whether you watch the movie, whether, you, whether you, you drink the alcohol, whether you trick or treat, whether you get the tattoo, whether you, in all of our interactions with whatever, wherever we're at, whether you eat or drink, whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. It ultimately circles back to where is this, this freedom I have is this gray area. Ultimately, it's not that what can I get by with? I just want to do what I want to do. What can I do? I just want to do. He says, whatever we do, do it to the glory of God. Because we are returning the glory that has been given us in Christ. That Christ laid aside these things for our sake. And he calls us to follow him. And by following him, by submitting our lives to him, by giving him back what he's given to us, that is worship, that we glorify God. And in that, it changes our hearts. It changes the way that we interact with one another. We are in a culture, we want to fight for our rights. We want to argue about everything. We want to dissent about everything. And if we as a church can captivate what it looks like to lay aside our rights for the sake of one another, that has huge echoes in the culture that we find ourselves in. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are so thankful that you are a God who laid aside your rights for our sake. Jesus, I pray that that backdrop, that that reality would be what motivates us, what leads us as we navigate gray areas together. 
May everything we do, Jesus, give worship and glory to you. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.